another episode of Tactical Edge. I'm Siobhan Cleveland, 4th Air Force Public Affairs. Joining us today is Major General Jeffrey Pennington, Commander of 4th Air Force. And with him, we have a very special guest, the Deputy Commander of Air Force Reserve Command, Major General Matthew Berger. Thank you both for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Siobhan. It's great to be here. All right, so, sir, we have an array of topics to cover today, including strategic alignment and readiness and training, and it's pretty much a, a continuation of our current series. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you and General Berger to dive in. Hey, thanks, Siobhan, and uh, hey, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you cutting some time out, spend a little time with our listeners here in 4th Air Force, and as we spoke about, we've, uh, we've been talking about on these podcasts in our most recent series about readiness and exercise training. Uh, but before we jumped into that, I thought I'd ask you to talk a little bit about the fiscal environment, uh, maybe some of the things you're seeing on how we're aligning funds and some of the tools from uh, the command perspective for our listeners. Yeah, the, as you know, we're working really hard uh, to, to have sound financial strategy. So we work with the NAFs to develop both the RPA spin plan and the O&M spin plan. Uh, there's challenges with each e-portfolio, and, and we can dive deeper into that another time. But So it starts with a good strategy, uh, and I think we're learning. The second piece, though, and what I think we really are seeing uh, us roll out is this shared situational awareness tool of our RPA funds all the way down to the unit level. You know, for decades, we've operated using PBAS as a primary system, and it's not great. It's a legacy system that's difficult to get in. And then even if you're in, the money is dissected against work centers and officer versus enlisted. So for commanders at every echelon of command, may, optimizing the resource in support of the mission is challenging. So this month, We've been doing a beta test, and by the end of the month, we'll have it fully operational, a tool that can be deployed at every level and allow each echelon to optimize and make good decisions on using primarily RPA funds and the travel associated with it. But shortly, we'll have O&M funds in there as well. Yeah. Hey, great point there. Let's start with talking about the RPA or the Reserve Personnel Appropriation. And I think you brought up a great topic that's a shift for uh, reservists and leaders at every level, that because of the way the budget operates so close to the, the line or balancing the books, it's driving a need for a greater situational awareness, a greater skill set and planning and execution down at every level. So to, to add some depth to that context, can you talk about a couple of the drivers on that uh, reserve permanent Reserve Personnel Appropriation, or RPA side, specifically some of the challenges and strategies we've had with, let's say, uh, paying for UTAs and annual tour, and then also how the dramatic change in the AGR payrolls affected some of those strategies and implementation. Yeah, uh, those are really good questions. So let me try to illuminate a few, but not we can't talk in this forum ever everywhere. You know, understanding how to resource a unit in 721 AT and TEEP specifically, we've used historic execution. And so what we'll look at is kind of the environment that the manning of that unit level, and then really it's a top line drill. Meaning we'll look at 4th Air Force and say, how many folks do you have and what has been your historic execution? And we kind of do our best guess to lay the resource in across your NAF. 
What we've learned is that that model didn't account for large-scale mobilization, use of MPA, and so that was we didn't have the analytics to really optimize that resource. And so we saw inefficiencies. It meant that some units were over underfunded and other units were overfunded. And our ability to recognize it early and move those funds when we were really needing RPA discretionary funds and it was locked up there. So I think that was one challenge. I think we've learned and grown. Our analytic model is much, much better, but we're also giving that authority to the units who best know what their participation look patterns look like. I think the second thing is you mentioned AGR payroll, which is actually RPA budget. We saw last year, as an example, over-execution of our, RP, our AGR workforce going into a fiscal year where we're adding in strength of AGRs. And so what that meant is under a CR with no new money, tremendous pressure on our RPA discretionary budget. So what we had to do was watch very closely the accession rate of AGRs and the authority that we had under CR and at what time we could expect to get a permanent budget where we would be fully funded for that end strength. And so I think we learned some things. There's things we can do better. And we've learned that the mechanics of controlling end strength, metering the money, and positioning the money in the right place at the right time, one is challenge. And I think you hit it. In past years, we've had excess resources. The underlying driver to all of this is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 10% of our force was uh, non-prior service. Now we're about 50 or 60%. That is a direct uh, implication on our discretionary dollars that now need to go to basic military training, tech schools, seasoning training, and the cost of our new airmen is obviously much higher than a trained airman. So it creates budget pressure on discretionary dollars. Yeah. Hey, great discussion there. And you mentioned the term CR, which of course is the uh, continuing resolution. And that's when Congress decides to allow the military to continue to operate without a budget that's signed in the law. And you mentioned the, the final budget or a full budget coming later. So that does complicate things. And we're not going to jump into a lot of detail uh, uh, in this form on that, but, but that does make it uh, difficult to determine where you're going to take risk early in the fiscal year. I think airmen see that as uncertainty, but I just listened to you talk to uh, the command chiefs and the senior enlisted leaders in a forum. You touched on uh, our execution rate early last year during that uh, CR period and under execution. So maybe as a help to this coming future year strategy, can you talk about what airmen should be thinking about as far as participation you know, in military status early in the year under a CR? Uh, again, you're, I, uh, these are big challenges for us, and so I hope this forum. I, I, I worry that the listeners are getting going to sleep about us talking about money, but uh, to to make it pertinent to the lives of each airman assigned to Fourth Air Force, what I hope for is unit commanders and airmen have a plan to participate and generate mission at the unit level. And what I hope, regardless of whether we're under a continuing resolution or a full budget, that we have a good training plan that I can we can distribute funds to support the needs of our airmen. When I say distribute funds, AT executed early uh, for the units that need to do big training in that first quarter. And then RPA for units that are getting ready to deploy and need to do exercises and be ready to deploy, say, in second quarter. So what I think is with these tools that I've described and uh, really at each echelon, good planning and, and 
clearly articulating what the status of our airmen and where they need to participate will allow us to line the funds and not shut down spending. We want smooth spending for mission and support of our airmen all year. Yeah. Hey, that's a great recap. And and I know that a lot of these topics will probably transcend many of our listeners' current level of understanding about the fiscal domain. But, but this is exactly why I'm covering it, because I want them aware. If it creates curiosity or things they don't know about, I want them to be inquisitive. And as you know, we've got some of the most highly trained, intelligent uh, people coming into our service. And I think if we, we add some depth to their understanding, it'll help smooth out those disturbances or uncertainties that you reference. So, so I'm okay with, with, with stretching them a little bit. Um, but you, you had some key points there at the end about uh, executing, having a detailed plan, being ready to go, and I think that will help. And so, hey, I, I just want to spend a little bit more time on finance before we move over to exercises and the other parts of readiness. And you mentioned a category of spending called O&M or operations and maintenance. And in particular, when I'm visiting airmen at the field, I get a lot of questions about what's going on with our civilian workforce. So uh, certainly we're not going to peel this one all the way back, but maybe you could hit a couple highlights about where we've been, uh, where we've been, and what we can expect in the future, uh, in particular with civilian hiring and staffing. Yeah. So as you know, uh, but make sure all the listeners understand, our civ pers cost is a little over a billion dollars a year, and our total budget is six billion. Flying hours is about a billion. And so it's a pretty significant portion of our budget. And it's one where um, historically we have under executed. And when you under execute both within the, the Pentagon as we build a Department of Defense budget and in Congress, they're, they're going to use the resource optimal. So if we're not fully executing, they take money from those programs. And so what we've seen is we've really leaned out our civilian payroll and civilian workforce. And most of the workforce is very familiar with the, the civilian slowdown in hiring we've done and the ETP requirement. So if you recall, as a quick recap, over the last seven months, at the early months, we were only allowing across our entire MAGCOM about 40 or 50 full-time hiring actions and uh, until we got the UMD controlled to manage risk. What we've been able to do over the last several months working with the units in the NAFs is get that under control, and we have now got the UMD to, to represent what we can afford. And, and so now, even in the last three months, we've offered where we were going 40 or 50 a month, we're now up to 150, 250, 400 across the MAGCOM. And I think next month you'll see unconstrained hiring authorization, and we will continue to monitor the total end strength relative to a payroll that we can that we are afforded through the budget process. Yeah, hey, that's an excellent recap of what is a very complex set of constraints. Uh, for example, we know the cost of talent is going up. I know General Scobie and Chief White talk about this competition for talent. And sometimes we put incentives in place like a special salary rate or a relocation, recruitment, retention incentive. And we've just had to look at spending in those areas to keep the talent we have. And sometimes it takes a while for budget to catch up. So that and uh, the other thing I, I hadn't mentioned previously to this audience is that during COVID, we had a much higher retention rate of our civilian personnel. And so when you go off past you know, a five-year look back and all of a sudden you have a year where you retain so many more people, this happened on the military side as well. It threw off some of our 
past methods for doing predictive analytics. So great recap on that. Well, I'm sure our listeners are thrilled with this fiscal overview. Uh, it should make them hungry and curious at how these things work, which is, which is the goal of covering it. And I think each airman now shares a responsibility to understand some of these things like they never had to before so they can help understand when we put out strategy how to follow that strategy will lead to optimized uh, execution, uh, planning and execution. All right, well, shifting gears a little bit over to readiness, uh, as you know, Matt, one of the things I've talked about consistently in Fourth Air Force is shifting from a kind of show up to drill, uh, get things done at home station to wherever possible, focusing on real world, closer type uh, things like an exercise. You mentioned the inexperience of the force. You know, we have forces that haven't deployed six or eight times like like we used to. So could you just hit a couple uh, highlights there as far as expectations on just overall kind of training strategy as it relates to uh, exercises versus just kind of getting, signing in and doing commander's call kind of thing? Yeah, th there's some great work going on within 4th Air Force and across Air Force Reserve Command getting after in, in the end, we want a ready force to take on a near-peer adversary, China or Russia. And when you think of that fight, it's very differently than what we've been doing in CENTCOM. So, so I think your question is, so what are we doing about it? You know, a few couple years ago, we, we paid for additional manpower in three different units called OSS Next. So there's an example of where we've put additional resources to support the things like data link management in a modern warfighting, where you need to integrate the uh, data solutions. And we've also put additional exercise planners to facilitate the development and execution of exercises that create value that they're not the low end fight. And lastly, we've uh, really increased funding towards theater level exercises. So I think you'll recall just a few years ago, as I started my job at the FGC, we were spending about $5 million to $10 million. We're up to $26 million in support of units that are prepared to go into theater. We saw a great example of this as, we, as things got hot in the Ukraine. We had been doing exercises at a low level, so the units we deployed had, were familiar with the theater and ready to operate nimbly within the command and control structure. That's exactly what we're talking about, competing with Russia in Europe. Hey, the, that is a great example and a quick overview of uh, the Force Generation Center or the FGC and the deliberate planning of exercises that we've worked on maturing um, uh, and uh, what we call DPEX, that's the yeah. process for short. Um, and hey, so you kind of talked at a MAGCOM level there real quick. If you could, if you could touch on a little bit maybe at the, the wing or unit level and below, specifically how organizations might manage the couple of resources we have at Grissom and Westover. Yeah, and I, I, I probably did get a little higher above. You said at the UTA. <laughs> so uh, what I love about what we've seen at Westover, I think they call it Dog Patch, yeah. and at Grissom is they've created facilities that uh, really simulate a warfighting environment that units during a routine UTA can come in and leverage and practice you know, uh, establishing the base, operating the base, so command and control, exercising command and control, the generation of facilities, and then getting outside their comfort zone and really testing, uh, you know, we like to say the resiliency of our warfighting capability, which includes the resiliency of our airmen. I think we're seeing 
uh, a lot of innovation. I'll, I'll highlight 22nd is doing the rally series of exercises at the unit level. And then, you know, even in some of our fourth Air Force units, we're seeing the regional level exercises where like units or dissimilar units, you know, are leveraging airlift and air refueling. And we're really seeing UTA training lift. And what I think to your point, we need deliberate planning across multiple UTAs. There, you just cannot plan against for a high-end fight on a pickup game on Saturday morning to get you through the next 18 hours of a UTA. Hey, great. You, meant, you mentioned a couple points that are really important, uh, and I'll highlight the first one, then I'm going to use the second one as a transition to our next topic. You mentioned uh, establishing a base, operating a base, and fighting from the base. And for our listeners, this ties directly to Secretary Kendall's, Secretary of the Air Force, Air Force uh, operating imperatives, and that's number five, right? So if you're looking at justifying resourcing and timing, you align it to uh, operation imperative, I'm pretty sure it's number five, establishing the base and fighting from there. That's a great uh, focus for our listeners. Hey, the other topic you mentioned was on resiliency. And I think in this category, you're referring mostly professional re resiliency. And with, and this this uh, strategic uh, uh, priority from the boss has kind of morphed and changed a little bit over time, but it's really about making sure our airmen are ready to fight. And how they do that, of course, we take uh, interest in an airman on a personal level. So as, as we start to wind down this uh, particular podcast, could you talk a little bit about, from the headquarters perspective, what resiliency means, and then maybe some of the specific steps uh, that the uh, organization has taken to help with that topic. Well, you know, I think you you know you actually owned this early on under the uh, General Scobie's tenure, and I think what we learned, you know, under your stewardship initially was we we evaluated kind of two areas: personal re resiliency and professional resiliency. And what that morphs into is combat resiliency really when it comes together is the ability to sustain and fight and absorb losses. I've heard you say that numerous times. So what we've done is we've looked at all of our professional developed curriculum, squadron commander's course, group commander's course, wing commander's course, and the chief's course, all of the courses and some more that we're going to need to develop. And in that curriculum, we know that professional resiliency, it's foundational to competency. If we have competently led squadrons, units, groups, wings, that's a starting point for good unit resiliency. And the second thing is the personal resiliency. We've infused, uh, we're working on really pushing it out to all the units, is this um, uh, within our skills upgrade training, developing resiliency through a professionally developed syllabus. And it, it's not additive, it's not new, it's taking your core competencies and infusing curriculum that reinforces the ability and challenges us personally and professionally to withstand a high op-tempo demanding fight. And I think we're, we're just really starting to get to scale, but we're working with the headquarters functionals to develop really uh, support material that can be deployed to the unit level. Yeah, hey, that's some great things. And uh, as we round, it, I, I know it's we're going to wind down, but you mentioned a couple things there that I think are really important as we kind of talk about some uh, leadership uh, changes maybe here at AFRC. That Chief White and General Scobie have been great advocates of uh, allocating some specific full time uh, resource to the unit. Um, so, both on the civilian and military side, for example, uh, first sergeants, chaplain corps. Uh, public health and and uh, and different things like that. You just touch on that real quick, and then we'll close up. Yeah. So you you hit on the full time first shirts. What we know that our airmen airmen need and should have is a single point of contact with the training and the skills 
to connect them to the resources they need at time of crisis. And so we have paid for and are, are slowly working through the implementation across a couple of years, the full deployment to all our wings. So they have that capability. I, I think that's essential. We've already built out the uh, directors of psychological health. We've been in the uh, flight surgeons and the medical care to facilitate and have more nimble and agile care that doesn't have a long backlog. And then lastly, you mentioned the religious affairs airmen. We also have the um, career advisors, which ensure the bonuses and support and professional development of our members and retention. So this suite of full-time manpower, while not fully realized yet, but we'll get there, is really this network now that we can connect at the wing level to ensure the support of our airmen as they accomplish mission. Yeah, hey, that's a great uh, summary. And I, I aspire to have that degree of uh, clarity and communication, Matt. That's awesome. Well, hey, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times, but you've been in the headquarters uh, the last couple of years working as DCOM uh, directly with uh, General Scobie. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what that tenure has been like and then what's going on with the leadership at headquarters? Well, you know, I know you and I share some time together at the headquarters and you, you had a long tenure. And, you know, what? it's such a privilege you know, we've got some great leaders in Air Force Reserve Command and, and Chief White and uh, General Scobie. The privilege for me is to get to see them in action. And from my vantage point, over the last two years, you know, every one of the history of our CAFRs brings something unique and, and awesome. I think for the time we had in COVID, we had one of the most, uh, two of the most compassionate leaders uh, with an understanding of the what the we, resources we needed at the unit level. And uh, I think you've heard the boss say a million times, flatten the communication, let's talk to our airmen. You know, I think we did 86 different cats that included the wing commanders to be able to empower and hear what they needed. One example of his leadership. Uh, I think um, as we got information and resources, we just opened the floodgates to ensure that they were resourced to deal with crisis. You know, after the hurricane it, that wiped out Tyndall, uh, we, he is one of the most compassionate leaders and he deeply cares about each and every one of our airmen, as does Chief White. And it's just been just a privilege and I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm just so appreciative that we have that kind of leadership. Yeah, hey, nice summary, and I can share many of those same sentiments. You know, I just uh, learned a lot from him during my tenure and, and watched how he brought uh, such a, an inclusive conversation and dialogue to difficult problems and leveraged the talent and intellect of, of many leaders at, at many different levels to help problem solve. So I'm agreeing with you there. Uh, at the same time, we know a CAFR's tenure doesn't last forever. Uh, so you can kind of give us a little bit about what we know and don't know about the future leadership in Air Force Reserve Command. Well, you know, one of the things about our system is we rely on uh, nomination from the president and confirmation by the Congress. And so we are, uh, we have gone through all that process. And I think uh, when, when the time is appropriate, the president will share his nomination. We expect it at any time. We've got a uh, General Scobie's uh, a changeover would occur sometime in the first week of August. I think we're running out of time to do this on time, but we'll We'll kind of hold our breath, and I, we've seen the same kind of tight timelines with other MAGCOMs within the Air Force, and that's, you know, Congress is a busy body, and they've got a lot on their plate as well, so we're, uh, I think it's, a, it's the right way to do it. It's just sometimes takes some time. Yeah. 
Well, hey, great uh, summary there. So, hey, General Berger, uh, thanks for the time uh, with our listeners today. Thanks for uh, feeling uh, the questions here and adding some depth and context and understanding so our airmen so they can uh, be more inquisitive, understand the responsibility that we all have to be great stewards of the taxpayer's money, optimize it for building airmen, building leaders, ensuring they have opportunity to grow, Uh, at the same time, achieving our mission of being combat ready for whatever our nation calls us to do. So thank you so much for being with us today. All right, Siobhan, over to you for our our closing today. Well, thank you both so much for being here, Uh, General Berger, General Pennington. Um, Do either of you have any closing remarks before we sign off? All good. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of Tactical Wedge. As always, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the show on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And don't forget to follow us at 4th for the latest and greatest. Until next time, thanks for listening.